imagine the writer's room of that show is that like every episode they had to like come up with another thing for to be behind a locked door so Alex could turn into a puddle and go through the locked door. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. What do you mean, Barks has bite? Johnny? (laughs) Oh, you got that one, Bob. All right, how about this one? Um, Roll that beautiful bean footage. (laughs) (laughs) Is that Boston Big Beans? No. What's his name? Um, that do- the dog who says that. Yeah, I think it's Frank. Yeah, it's got to be Frank, right? Means right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got one for me. Mm. I wanted to do something around. Um, ah, I can't get it. Something around, like Manwich. You know those little. <laughs> This cans of manwich because you got me thinking about <laughs> cans of baked beans. Whoa, ha! Yeah, I don't know what a can of manwich is, but I'm. I think I'd like a can of it. <laughs> I think it's like a can of sloppy joes. Oh, nice! I love it. Um, here I got one for you. This one is one that I I was super into. This is a quick humdinger. Okay. Um, See if you can name what this is from. Ready? Do, 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 do. Power Rangers? Yeah. (laughs) Power Rangers. Man, I wonder how many of our listeners will just like recognize that little riff. (laughs) Probably a lot, I would say. Yeah. You know, I don't want to tangent too much, but I need another tangent, Bob. There was another Nickelodeon TV show that I used to watch. And it, the name of the show was Alex Mack, but I oh, think yeah. it might've been like the incredible Alex Mack. And my idea of the show is that Alex Mack got superpowers because she got in some like nuclear meltdown and her superpower was to turn into a puddle of water. Oh yeah, that's right. That was. And I, I don't remember anything about the show, but I imagine the writer's room of that show is that like every episode they had to like come up with another thing for to be behind a locked door. So Alex could turn into a puddle and go through the locked door and then unlock it because like, what else is that superpower good for? It's like, Oh, I'll turn into a puddle and go under that door. (laughs) How many seasons do you think it lasted? Oh God. I, I bet they made three seasons of that until 10 Things I Hate About You Wow, came out. Um, um, nope. They've done four seasons and they nice. did 78 episodes. <laughs> and she turned into a puddle in every episode and snuck under the door to save the day. Oh, man. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. I, you know, and then I was also thinking, am I misremembering this? But. Did she also like talk to a ghost or something? Hmm. But I remember there was a TV show called Ghost Writer. Yeah, that where really exists. That was a good good one. It was basically a bunch of kids would talk to this like floating dot 
um, no one else could see it and they, it would like communicate in cryptic clues. <laughs> That's right. That one was on PBS and there's something about it that was educational or wholesome. But I can't quite remember what that was. Was it a TV show built around the idea of learning cursive? <laughs> it could have been a, a writing-based TV show. Which it just builds on those PBS shows. You remember, um, was it called Math Counts? Or something yeah. like that? Is that the one with MathNet? With Agent, yeah. Agent uh, Friday and some other person that would do math? Yeah. They'd solve crimes by like doing math. <laughs> by by uh, remembering all your basic squares. Well, seven times seven is 49. And this is one more. So oh, it's- it was, no, it was called square one. That was what that show is called. <laughs> See, it's all about the squ- knowing your, your multiplication math facts. That's right. That's pretty funny. Um, okay. I have one more tangent to go down, Bob. I guess this one is just a tan tangential episode but um alex mack was on in the movie 10 things i hate about you and we're certain that it's um it's a remake of a shakespearean play oh yeah true yeah taming of the shrew um, it's a taming of the shrew okay that's what i thought that it it's basically just the taming of the shrew then huh yeah. where they're trying to get after one of the sisters to, and they have to date. Oh, that makes sense. So they, you have to date one of the sisters to get after the other one, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, interesting. Because like the younger sister can't get married until the older one does, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Final tangent. Ready? Yep. It's a it's a quick factoid for you, Bob. Oh, I love those. Oh no, it's a uh, what do we call them? We call them did you knows? Did 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 you know? No, hey, hey, did you know? 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 Um, all right, Bob, I want you to guess what author has um made books. Sorry, the most of hit his or her works has been made into TV and movies. So the adaptation of this author's works has been made into more um, movies and TV shows. I'll go with Shakespeare. <laughs> See, it's funny. I went with Charles Dickens and we both know what the right answer is, don't we? Yeah, it's Stephen King. Yeah, it's Stephen King. <laughs> Why did we, we, ah, we outthought it, Bob. <laughs> I was kicking myself for that one. <laughs> we both know it's Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. <laughs> we both, yeah, it's von Goethe. <laughs> nice, Bob. Yeah, Stephen King. But you know, I would make an argument that, like, there's so many more references to like a Christmas Carol than like any other thing. But like, you know, just because a TV show like The Simpsons references a Christmas Carol doesn't mean it's based off. A Christmas Carol, you know what I mean? You mean that Dickens would not get the credit? I don't think so. Not on that one. Whereas, like, you know, uh, let's just say The Shining, obviously, is just an adaptation of Stephen King's book um, called uh, Weekend with Jack. 
<laughs> Love that book. <laughs> the Young Adult Novel Weekend with Jack. Yeah. All right. This is some proper bullshitting, isn't it? Very gravy bullshit. Why don't we yeah. continue and harken back to a show that we did this weekend, but when this thing comes out, would be published like two and a half weeks ago. Sure. And that yeah. is the post Oscar buzz. Yeah, I'm feeling it. You know, I called our our respective mom on the telephone, and I I like to recap the podcast with her. I say, "Did you watch the Oscars? Did you get pumped?" And she was like, "Oh, yeah. What'd you think?" And I was like, "Oh, I didn't watch them, mom." <laughs> and she's like, "You sounded so pumped on your show. You didn't watch a single thing." And she just railed on Frances McDormand. Oh, did she? Mc- McDermott, McDormott, incendiary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She thought that her acceptance speech was the worst thing that, oh man, that she's ever seen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And she said it was so boring. Did you watch it? I I didn't watch it. I watched some clips afterwards. Uh But I didn't watch that speech, no. Yeah. The... Big news story was sort of giving it to Anthony Hopkins and not Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people were not happy with that. But so, like, no one focused on Francis McDormand's speech at all, at least in the press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Hopkins wasn't even there. He wasn't even in London. He was, like, in Scotland, and he, like, had a letter read, right? Yeah. He had no acceptance speech. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they just had someone go up and read a tweet that he had written uh, two days ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it. I don't know. I'm curious to go back and look at it. I also know that there was no MC, right? That's right. Which is kind of a a ballsy move, especially when... Billy Crystal is alive and well. It's just like, (laughs) get him up there. (laughs) Yeah. The general consensus is that the format was a big flop and yeah, the viewership was way down. Yeah. I was a little bit sad. I don't, I feel like the Oscars continued to be quite white. It was just kind of a down year for movies. Most people that listen to our episode or would probably say like, oh, I used to, you know, like Steve Owens was like, I used to try and see every Best Picture nomination before the Oscars. And this year, he's seen one, you know? And like, everyone I've talked to hasn't seen any of the movies, you know? So, but it's like, what else are we doing? Aren't we all like quarantined and hanging out? That seems true. You know, I guess I'm a bit of a outlier then because I've seen, I'd seen half the Best Pictures and a handful of the other ones in there, so... I feel like I, I, I've been one of the people who has been watching the movies. Don't know what you all yeah. people have been doing, though. <laughs> uh, I think we're, no, we're just caught up on uh, The Circle or The Crown. <laughs> That's right. Take your pick. People have taken the whole pandemic to catch up on those two shows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's not pretty. It's not pretty. I mean, we all have our show that we watch, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. 
Okay, Bob. Well, you doing good? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Juiced and ready. Juiced. Oh, okay. I'm not quite ready. I have another question for you, Bob. Yeah. What's the best podcast snack? Peanuts. (laughs) Okay. Let's get to the peanuts then, Bob. Let's get to the real good stuff here. Um, I'd say break out those salty ones or your honey roasters, if if you have them. And um, I'll get us going. Bob and I went to a, whatchamacallit, a Zoom thing. (laughs) Is that what we call them now? (laughs) What's it called, Bob? You could get away with that. Yeah. So, a webinar uh, or a Zoom talk? Yeah. It was put on by Surge, but I'm not sure exactly which Surge was putting it on, but I think it was a conglomeration of a lot of Surges in general. Yeah. Standing um, up for racial justice. Yeah. And there are, you know, Surges all over the place. Like there's a Surge in Middlebury, Vermont, and there's a Surge right behind you if you'd. If you in the right light, Surge will be sitting right behind you. Yeah, I think um, I see it. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, a bunch of Surge leaders from across the country got together and put on this great Zoom thing, also known as a webinar. And it was the I guess the main event was Mary, Miriam Kaba was on there and she was giving a great talk about the defund movement and um, police abolition and how it all relates to white supremacy. And and we were just going to take the time because we haven't had a chance to decompress. And we thought, why not decompress with you all Um, and sort of get you all there? Because why not? It's a good thing to be talking about and we're excited to get into it. That's great. Yeah, I can say that the Surge folks are, just to give them a little more background, a group trying to get white people into racial justice movements and give white people support in those movements and gain skills and ability to spread that awareness and actions. and that Miriam Kaba is someone we've talked about on this show in her New York Times article entitled, Yes, We Do Mean Abolition. And she's a prolific organizer um, on issues related to transformative justice and community accountability and prison abolition. She has a new book out. Um, we do this till we're free. And yes, so Surge people introduced the space and they said like 10,000 people signed up for the event and at least 3,000 people were there. So that's really amazing numbers. At least I was surprised to see such large numbers. And yeah, Miriam Kaba spoke for, I think, about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And then another few organizers for Surge did some reflections after Miriam spoke. So yeah, I did. We could talk about some of our take-home messages that we got out of it. Um, And 
maybe expand from those points after we talk about that. Love it. Yeah. I was thinking we'd start off with one of the activities Miriam had us do. Um, and I also thought it'd be nice to read the digital land acknowledgement too. If you want to pull that up while I, um, yeah, just kind of lead this first activity and get your, get your feedback on it too, Bob, because I, it was an interesting one. She had us sort of sit there and do some visualization about a moment where we felt um, safe or sorry, a moment where we felt, yeah, very safe. And what does it mean to feel very safe? So I'm going to kind of encourage you all to just think about what that means. Like, what is that moment for you where you're at a, like just feeling just like so happy and warm and safe and loved. And, you know, it was a, I do want to also say the disclaimer that Miriam gave where she said that, you know, maybe none, maybe you haven't felt safe. Maybe there isn't that moment or you don't have a memory of that moment. And that is okay as well. And to encourage like all views and all people and to welcome them, whether or not, yeah, whether or not you've ever felt that safety thing. And one of my reflections, which was a common reflection um, from the chat, was that I, I felt like there were, when I was encouraged to think about that moment of safety, I felt more that I could only focus on the few times in my life that I felt unsafe. Um, and one of the moments that was coming to mind was when I lost you, Bob, in Mallorca um, in the middle of the night. and. I was just like frantic searching the streets for you at like 3 a.m. and just like running everywhere. And that felt, I felt really out of sorts. And that felt like a moment of unsafety. And um, yeah, I think traveling in general is that you always feel a little bit uneasy when you first start into your travels um, in a foreign place out of your comfort zone. But yeah, so that's interesting how I felt like most of my life feels like going from a safe place to another safe place. And of course, that is such a white privilege moment to reflect on. And of course, male privilege and growing up in Boulder, all those things, right? Yeah. Did you have, what was your takeaway? What was your safe place, Bob? Um, I had similar reflections. I was like, she posed that prompt and so, and then I just felt into the current moment that I was in. I'm like, Oh, I feel like plenty safe right now. So I just, she had us like picture the images and the smells. I'm like, okay, I guess this is just like right now. And I was looking around and I did have those feelings around privilege around like how, how privileged I am just to like not even have to search for a moment. It's just like right there. And um, so, yeah, I was very struck by the various forms of systems that privilege me in that moment. Um, so yeah, I thought the exercise was good for that. Yeah. And the main takeaway from that exercise is, and why I wanted to thought that we could open with that is the idea that like, I, do any of your images 
does any of you who thought about it feel like there was um, police or cops in your picture of safety? Like, is that part, because that is like what we're told, right? That the police are there for our safety and to protect us. And so I think it's a really nice takeaway to, to hold on to that. Like if that is what we're told that the police are for, are there for our safety, then why are we not picturing them there? And I think that, I mean, my reaction was just like laughter, like, of course not, you know? And yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more, but I was um, just, you know, it's an interesting idea. So I wanted to put that out there. And I was also really curious to hear the digital land acknowledgement again, because I really like that one. Yeah. I, I don't have it in front of me, Dave. I have other notes, but not that note. Uh, no worries. I'll, I'll try and find it too. While you go move on to the next point. Yeah. The next point I would say that I was interested in the setup even before Miriam Kaba. If we're going to go to the land acknowledgement that there was a person there who was organizing the event and sort of introducing Serge and she's a white woman. And she said at one point that she's an unapologetic abolitionist. And I'm always so interested in language and use of words with uh, an event, you know, with like 3000 people there, I'm sure. There's a lot of diversity in the audience and some people probably identify as abolitionists. Other people might really not know that word or not, or sort of recoil with that word. So um, I'm always curious about whether to use that word or not and how to use it. I think it made sense, like use that word and then knowing that much of the rest of the webinar would define that word and get to the heart of that. So for me, that make, made sense. Uh, but yeah, for example, when I'm teaching, I do use that word and I eventually identify as an abolitionist in my classes, but it's not usually early on in my classes, you know, not, not in the first few weeks. It takes me a while to get there. Um, so yeah, just I'll note that and, throw it back to you, Dave. Yeah. Huh, yeah. I, I think that it is interesting to be like in the spaces we move through. Like, I guess I feel like I identify as an abolitionist, but I don't feel like that's a safe thing to identify as necessarily. And yeah, I feel like it brings about a stigma um, and I feel like part of what we want to do is to be able to identify as an abolitionist. And if we do, then like, let's be able to back it up and let's get some more knowledge about it because, um, yeah, I think that that's like, it's easier to say like, yeah, we need to defund, but, um, yeah, maybe I'll end with the land acknowledgement because I want to get into the next point and I think we can, um, move towards that a little bit too. Um, yeah, this idea of like, so then what is, what is our point of like, where are we going wrong? Like if you go back and re-listen to our episode on like how the police are formed, like the history of the policing in the United States, 
then you'll have a little bit more background information and know this idea that police are like a racist institution set up to perpetuate white supremacy and especially for the rich. And that is like the institutional that's like ingrained into the policing system. But like one of the questions that came up that felt really good to me is this idea that like, there's no one answer to solve this problem. And like, that's something that gets put back on um, people that identify as abolitionists or defunding movements. So it's like, okay, so what would you do? Like, so you would just have, what would you do with a rapist? Like, just tell me, what would you do with that situation? Or like, how do you solve the idea of murder in your society in your quote unquote, perfect society? Like, how are you going to solve that? And I feel like these like super hypothetical questions are often posed. Like, so you need to have this one catch all answer and we can go about it two different ways. Like we can look at how like the police are overtasked. Like we have defunded the commons in such a strong way. Like we've gotten rid of all these like very specific jobs and like put that onto the idea of like policing. Right. So like rather than having um, someone that's going to deal with um, houseless people or someone that is going to like take care of like people with mental problems, right? Those fall on the jurisdiction of policing, which means that like we have this person that doesn't, isn't trained at all to deal with um, either, either of those situations and their training comes from, you know, brute force and you have, give them a gun, you know, it's like, what do we expect to happen in those situations? Right? Like, why are we not sending a healthcare worker to go, um, you know, talk to someone who needs mental help or why are we not sending someone that has like an the ability to help, uh, a houseless person. Right. So, um, anyways, that is like one idea, right? So like we are putting there this idea of there's no one answer and like the police are, have been, become this one answer, which is one of the problems. And I feel like you can't solve each and every issue. And this is what Miriam was talking about. We can't solve each and every issue with just one answer. Right. And so there, she did create a website called 1 million experiments and it's this idea that like there are like a million different answers to help solve the problem of what we do in a world without police. And I really like that idea that like, yeah, let's look at a, you know, a soup kitchen in, you know, the Bay area in Berkeley, for instance, uh, or like a food, not bombs in Berkeley and how they are doing some of the work to help people that can't get food, can't get their food met, needs met. And so that is one of the experiments that are, is offering a solution to a defunded policing system. And yeah, I feel like that point really resonated with me. This idea of a hundred jobs smashed into one with a gun and this idea of 1 million experiments being the answer. And I feel like they're kind of like together for me. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good reframing 
around that question. The when you talk about abolition, the immediate response people almost ask the question before you can say the word. Like, okay, who's going to replace the the police? Smart guy. That's like the question, and he sort of gets asked with that type of attitude often as well. Um, and so I like how you reframed it around, well, there, there's not one solution. And because there, there's such a host of different issues at play. And um, in order to nurture those other solutions, we've got to give them some, some funding. And Miriam Kaba talked about budgets. And like budgets are moral um, things, you know, like wherever you give money to, that's what you think is good in society. And so our society is saying, we think police are really good and we don't really think education and these other things are really good. So, um, yeah, the hope would be, okay, well, let's fund these other things. and that that means defunding the police however i think the language of defunding the police and even more so abolishing the police even for folks who are like oh yeah the experiments are good that's great like keep on working on those but um like you need to like stop using the word defund um and also like don't even think about abolishing the police. Uh, and unfortunately, that is, yeah, I don't know if Miriam talked about, because I had to duck out for a little bit at the end, if she talked about um, that. I think she kind of tried to frame everything to get us away from that very question and to th- have us thinking more productively rather than defensively around the language that gets used um yeah but uh another person after her spoke to that a little bit but i'll pass it to you before we talk about that other person yeah there was one of the points you ducked out at and i'm gonna mess up this analogy but i really like this analogy another author wrote um uses this the analogy of a burger stand um, that is nowhere like 200 miles from anywhere and uh, you're going on a road trip and you stop at this burger stand um, or there's a huge line at the burger stand and it's, you know, a huge line there because there's nothing else within 200 miles. So like you could make the assumption that like, this is a really good burger stand because there's a giant line. But the truth is, is that this burger stand is you know selling really just crappy burgers and there's nothing of any like real value at this burger stand and she you know obviously this is an analogy for the policing system and like what we really need to do is and it's like a reframing what we need to do is we need to set up some other joints to be eaten at right like put a taco stand in right put in a let's say a veggie place um you know put in some orange chicken for bob um you know just like diversify 
what is there. And inevitably you're not going to end up with a line out the door at the burger joint. Um, and I feel like there's like, regardless of that analogy, even if it was the best burger stand in the world, I feel like what we need to be thinking about is how we can diversify our tactics. And I feel like that's a really anarchist or direct action way of thinking is like the best action is like the best action to enact social change is all the actions a various diverse group of actions because we can't affect change with one thing. What, what worked once won't work the next time. And so the more that we're, the more options that we have, the better off we're going to be as a society, both with trying to enact social change and in what we're doing. And I feel like that feels like, I don't know, it feels like a real hopeful moment and something to be thinking about of, I feel like it reframes this idea of defunding in a way that feels like, yeah, maybe that is what we can do. Um, and I like how (laughs) Miriam, um, was talking about how, like, if I, you know, here I am talking to 3000 white people, I might as well bring in a hamburger analogy. Yeah. She said that that was pretty good. (laughs) Um, yeah. And I think too, after that, another point that I wanted to bring up is just that idea of joy that like, you know, let's let's be joyous about what we can use this money for. And like she posed the question, what would you do with this money, with this budget? Where would you put it towards? Because that is a real joyous and special thing to be celebrated. And I feel like, you know, obviously with a budget this massive, like there's so many different things that you can be joyous towards. And yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like we could take like one of the things that I was envisioning was how like the harm that has been done with the genocides of the native peoples and um, towards African slaves in this country. I would love to see some, um, some type of reparations with the money. I feel like that would be just like such a beautiful thing to be able to do. Um, but you know, that's obviously a dream, but I think it's nice to be able to say that out loud because that feels good to me. Yeah, that feels necessary. That does. Yeah. It feels necessary for healing and a, a society that actually values all, all the people in it and just, just fairness. That's just fair. So I agree with that. It's, um, we talked with mom about this and there's someone she listened to who has started more talking about divest from the police rather than using defund. And that might be a word that gains more traction in some circles. It's, uh, I'll, I'll just say that I, I strongly back the words defund and ab- abolish, but I also acknowledge that it, people need to be strategic about, you know, the use of particular words and with particular audiences. If the goal is to mostly just get to that place of diversifying approaches, um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that it's not ultimately it doesn't matter what words we use. It matters like what actually happens in terms of getting people resources that they need. Um, yeah, I I like it because the rhetoric of defund got elevated last summer in the uprisings after George Floyd was murdered. And it's a a contrast because, you know, it's happened so many times and the solution for the last like almost 10 years has been like, Oh no, police just need more training, more training, more cameras, more training. And the defund says like, no, that's like a dead end solution. And what needs to happen is getting money out of there. So I think that's the strength of that word. But anyways, that's a, down a little bit of a path that I don't know we want to go too much further right now. Um, there's one more thing I want to say about the speaker after Miriam, and then also I want to give you time to do the land acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. And I like that, Bob. I, I feel like that's an important, important distinction because I do, I mean, I think we all know that these labels have meaning and I feel like the label of like, (laughs) like just, just as you said, like when George Floyd was murdered, you know, it's, you know, something that we've said on this podcast since we've started. Um, Well, he was still alive when we started, but you know what I mean? Like we've used that language and there is a sense that like, it just hit me that like that statement is like vindicated now, you know, George Floyd, um, Derek Chauvin Chauvin was, um, he was, you know, found guilty of murder. And it's like one of those things which feels like that is kind of like one, I don't know if it is, but it feels like one of the first times in history that like a cop has been tried for murder, killing a person of color during their job you know what i mean and i don't know maybe i'm wrong about that but there feels like a lot of like hope in that statement to me um but i do want to acknowledge the idea that like yes this is not and i'm we've all been on instagram and twitter and we all know that like you know it's not just a bad apple and it's like the fight is not over and like yes this is a victory but it's not it it doesn't mean that the system now works all of a sudden. We have not fixed anything, right? Um, like, anyway, yeah. And I'm sure I, I could come up with more clever tweets if I took a second to rack the old mind grapes, but don't have it in me. But yeah, anyways, that's... I do think that those labelings are important because, yeah, when I hear this word abolitionist, you know, a police abolitionist, it feels like a stronger statement that's rooted in racial justice and it's rooted in what happened last summer and what's been happening in the whole history of the United States. And it, it's a stronger stance and I feel like it's a scarier stance. And I understand like, I, I don't identify like all the time as that, but I think that and when I do feel I'm in a safe place with people that I can trust, I do identify that way. And that feels like an important thing to say. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. Like in different jobs, you and I have talked about our jobs and like identifying as an abolitionist in your job could get you alienated. And um, yeah, you have to go about things a little bit more covertly, um, which is probably the case for a lot of people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess, yeah, maybe I'll do this one more thing and then the land acknowledgement because this goes with this. The white woman who was speaking at the very end um, after Miriam talking about her path and what stood out to me is she was doing, um, you know, she, was, she wasn't a radical activist by any means when she started and she got involved with a group and doing like prison work, meaning like supporting folks who are in prison. And she developed relationships with them, you know, friendships and support. And so she got to know prisons pretty well. And she just was appalled, like how awful um, and soul crushing and counterproductive for everyone involved prisons are. And so people around her had identified as abolitionist. Um, And so I think she like roughly knew what it meant. And I think she had like worries about it, concerns, like the concerns we've talked about tonight, like where, where, what will happen to the murderers and rapists um, if prisons don't exist. But she said, after like having so many friends, eventual friends that were in the prison system, she hated it so much and she could see how awful it was. So she just said, I'm an abolitionist. And I don't know what comes after prisons, but it's not this. And that's enough for me. You know, a little bit has to be taken on faith that humans can come up with something better. But whatever this is, um, she, she couldn't couldn't stand it anymore. And I, I thought that was a powerful story because she wasn't to that place, you know, theoretically, like, for example, where I am around um, abolition, you know, like, here's, here's what we could do, X, Y, and Z. She didn't even know, and she had strong concerns. But she's like, nope, um, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm an abolitionist because this, whatever we got going now is so disgusting. I can't have it. So that was a powerful mm. Um, All right. So this is a statement that pays respect to the indigenous people who live here and who have had their land stolen from them by colonizers. It is just the first and bare step in how we can support indigenous people today. And the following acknowledgement is what to keep in mind as we participate in a digital space. It's written by Adrian Wong of Spiderweb. Since our activities are shared digitally to the internet, let's also take a moment to consider the legacy of colonization embedded within the technology, structures, and ways of thinking we use every day. We are using equipment at end high-speed internet not available in many indigenous communities. Even the technologies that are central to much of the art we make leave significant carbon footprints contributing to changing climates that disproportionately affect indigenous people worldwide. I invite you to join us in acknowledging all this as we as well as share our responsibility to make good of this time and for us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. Not bad. Well, Bob, did you, did you like it all in all? Are you glad we went? Yeah, I am. Yeah, and I'm glad to have decompressed this a little bit. I think it's important to get out there and get on the Zoom thing every now and then, you know? Yeah, it is definitely the Zoom thing. There's a Zoom thing tonight. And, you know, I felt like 
about once a season, we talk about white privilege and it felt good to um, put it in this term of baggage that we carry and how we're carrying it with us into through every season, because I think it's important for us to keep coming back to that in this show. It seems like one of the pillars of thriving in dystopia, you know? Good. Yep. Absolutely. Well, we didn't talk about it, but do you have a gut check? Oh yeah. Gut check. Oh my God. Love the gut checks. (laughs) Do you want to give us one, Bob? Shall we? Gut check. Yes. Let's do a gut check. Um, And it will not be in the realm of sports because we always go there. So we got to take it to another place, Dave. And why don't we go to this idea of um, well, maybe we always go to COVID as well. So maybe I need to keep thinking because the COVID situation always on my mind. Yeah, a part of recent gut checks. I guess. Why don't we go to TV, the world of TV, Dave? Okay, Bob. And I'm up for it. You mentioned uh, the TV show The Circle. Yes. We're all watching it. (laughs) Have you started season two? Yep. I'm I'm on episode one. So you're going to make a prediction? Yeah. Um, and my prediction is, so I've, I've seen, I think the first six episodes, so wow. I know a little bit more than you. So it's a bit of a spoiler, but not a huge spoiler. Okay. I'm in. Turn Great. it off. If you can't, if you can't handle it, people. Yep. Great day. So this is my gut check. The gut check is the chances that um, the character Courtney wins the circle. Um, so you're saying Courtney's going to win the circle, and what what is the gut check on that? I'm going to say ten is for sure. Courtney wins <laughs> one is no way. Wow, so curious. I'm going to give you just from my gut, Bob, ten for ten. There's no way she's not winning. <laughs> oh, I think Courtney identifies as he. So I think you might be oh. mixing up characters. <laughs> There's no way he's not winning. There you go, Bob. What do you got for it? Um, I'm going to give it a six out of 10. Okay. Wow. One of our more likely gut checks, a 10 and a six. Yep. Love it, Bob. Thanks for getting on the spot and giving us that circle, the circle check. Yep. Um, all right, y'all. Well. We appreciate you. We love you. If you want to get after us, um, I'm only going to give you one way this week, and that is <clears throat> the the easiest way, and that is liking and sharing our podcast on the Podbean app. Whoa! Go to podbean.thrivingindystopia.com and give us a follow and a like. Hello! <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Uh, yeah, why not? Sure. You know all the normal ways, but we'll see you on Podbean and give us a comment there and we'll throw you a, I don't know, a high five or whatever. And 
just want to say thanks, Bob, for getting us out there to the Zoom thing and love you loads. And thanks for being here on a Thursday evening. Good stuff. Nadir, roll that beautiful bean footage. (laughs) Johnny? Driving crew, Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. And finally, our new outro song is Stay by Valerie June. See you next week. Thought I'd lost it, and you and my life was a show. Leave you.